Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 5. Psalm 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God, let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 5 is a part of a group of five psalms here, Psalms 3 through 7, that explore the theme of refuge. We saw in Psalm 1 the the blessed man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then in Psalm 2, we heard that the, the, the Messiah, the anointed king, is the son of God, the one whom God has seated at his right hand, the one in whom we must take refuge if we wish to be blessed. Psalm 2 ended, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, that last phrase of Psalm 2 sets up these next five psalms. Psalms 3 through 7 explore what it means to take refuge in the Lord. So, in a sense, here during Advent, we are looking at these songs of refuge. And in verse 11 of of Psalm 5, we now hear, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Now, that word refuge is used 25 times in the Psalter, 15 of them here in Book 1 in the first 41 Psalms. So it's, it's a prominent theme at the beginning of the Psalter. And also, if you look at Psalms 3 through 7, you'll notice it's, it's not just about the word refuge, it's about the idea. Only Psalms 5 and 7, besides Psalm so 2, 5, and 7, use the word refuge But all of these five psalms, Psalms 3 through 7, focus on the idea of taking refuge in the Lord. David cried out for deliverance in Psalm 3, describing Yahweh as a shield about me. And in Psalm 3, verse 4, he speaks of how Yahweh answered him from his holy hill. And then, notice the result. When God answered David's prayer, he lay down and slept. When you have found your place of refuge, you can sleep in safety. If, if you don't feel safe, you're not going to sleep well. And Psalm 4 called upon God to hear the prayer of the godly. And again, concluding, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The Lord, my refuge. 
And then as we'll, we'll see in the next couple of weeks, Psalm 6 also calls out to God for deliverance. Uh, and he's even, again, that theme of flooding his bed with tears every night because without his protection, without his refuge, he can't sleep. And so he's flooding his bed with tears. And then in, in verses 8 to 10 of Psalm 6, uh, David will declare that the Lord has heard his plea and so his enemies will be driven back. There is that hope for refuge. And then Psalm 7 declares, O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. So these, these five psalms of refuge are setting us up then, ultimately, for where we're going on Christmas morning when we get to Psalm 8, the Son of Man who has dominion over all things, connecting back with Psalm 2. So sort of, sort of just as a, that's a brief mini roadmap to see where are we going in Advent? We're looking at these Psalms of Refuge that connect Psalm 2, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the, 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 the King, takes refuge in the Lord's anointed, takes refuge in our Lord Jesus. And then Psalm 8, which will show us Jesus clearly in, on Christmas morning. It is perhaps fitting that Psalm 5 ends with those who truly love your name magnify you with their praise as we then turn to Luke chapter 1 as we will hear how Mary magnifies the Lord. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Hear now the word of our God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. In one sense, Zechariah and Mary have very similar responses. They both ask the question, sort of, how can this be? And if, if, you're, if you're looking for sort of there's a, something in their words that shows the difference, it's, it's not in their words. It's in their attitude. It's in their heart. It's in how they're hearing and responding and receiving this message. Because both of them receive unbelievable messages. Zechariah receives the unbelievable message that his old wife is going to have a baby. Mary receives the message that she, though a virgin, will conceive and bear a son. Both incomprehensible. And yet, Mary's response is one of faith, where she says, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And she goes on to magnify the Lord and rejoice in God my Savior. Psalm 5 had ended with a plea that those who love your name may exult in you, may magnify your name. Mary's song rejoices that God has finally done what he promised. It really, her, her whole song takes that theme of refuge from this altar and weaves it into, this is what God has now done and is doing in me. That he has now brought about all that he promised. Now, Psalm 5 begins with a plea for help. The the title to the choir master reminds us that the psalms were sung by a choir in the temple. David was the one responsible for arranging the Levitical choir and preparing music for the temple. Uh, Before the time of David, there seems to have been very little musical praise. Uh, This is part of what God appointed David to do. David's calling as, as king is actually, as he's preparing for the temple, he is, he is preparing the music for the temple. He is preparing the musicians for the temple. So, for instance, when it says later in the psalm that, uh, that he enters God's holy temple, you might, many have said, well, the temple wasn't built yet, so David couldn't have written it. Well, that's not actually true, because David was preparing all the building materials for the temple, He's preparing the musicians for the temple. So it would make sense if David actually wrote some songs that talk about the temple. Because he knows it's going to be built. God told him, your son is going to build it. And so David spends the last years of his reign preparing everything for the days when there will be a temple. He's not writing these songs purely about his experience. He's writing them for Israel to sing. Now, it's also when it says a psalm of David, that that doesn't mean that David had to write all the songs that say a psalm of David, because in Hebrew, that little prefix could mean by David, of David, for David, uh, about David. So I'm not saying that we know that David wrote all of them. I'm just saying it would be perfectly appropriate if he did write some of the ones that said, talked about the temple, because that's part of what David is preparing for. And as he does this, that's, it's, it's important for us to sing these songs and to remember these songs that, that 
as we're seeing here at the beginning of the Psalter, the singular and the plural is important in the Psalms. The singular, especially in the Psalms of David, the singular is the voice of the king, the voice of the Lord's anointed. And the plural is his people. Israel is being taught to sing these songs in David, with David, just as we sing them in and with Christ. And that's because, now it's not that, it's not that the singular is, oh, that's just about Jesus and that has nothing to do with me. Have you been united to Christ by faith? If so, then the I becomes your voice as well. You sing this in him. But it's important to see there's, there are certain things that are unique to Jesus. I hope we would all agree to that. <laughs> and there are certain things that are particular to us. And that's where it's helpful as we go through Psalm 5 to hear this as the way, in the way that it works out and how it helps us to see how we cry out for, for deliverance and seek refuge in the Lord. David opens, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. David acknowledges that, that okay, he's king, but he's crying out to the God who is his king. And the idea here is, if you don't answer me, then no one else will. It's the same sentiment that... that the apostle expressed when, when Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave too? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. David says, if you don't answer me, I'm doomed. If you don't hear me, I've got no future. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. We often wind up seeking the help from other gods, turning our hope to other sources of, of power, whether it's, whether it's our quest for power, our quest for wealth, our quest for, for knowledge. And we oftentimes seek those deities and their answers. But David says, no, I, I come to you. Now, each section of this psalm has a key. Uh, now, the Hebrew word key simply means for or because, but I really like the word key in Hebrew because actually when you think about the reasons for something are oftentimes the key, our English word key. And so sometimes I'll do this, well, I'll point out there's a, lot, there, there, there's a key to each section. And actually I'm, it's a play on words. It's both the Hebrew word key, for or because, and the English word key, which is the reason why we should pay attention. And the key in verse 2, you see it right there, for to you do I pray. Why should God hear me? Because I pray to you, O Lord. It's that simple. And now, of course, it's worth thinking about who God is and who I am because as the rest of the psalm will show us, God does not pay attention to everybody's prayer. That may sound shocking at first. But... Think about what Jesus says when he talks about those who come to him saying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? What does he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. God does not actually pay attention to everybody's prayer. He pays attention to those who come to him in faith. This is the important part of taking refuge in the Lord and in his anointed king. 
if you say, Lord, Lord, but then don't do what he says, then don't expect him to pay attention when you cry out. That's why David works through this question, who is God, in verses 3 through 7. Who is God, and who am I in coming to God? Well, he... Who is God? He's he's the Lord who hears my voice in the morning. Oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The morning prayer, the morning sacrifice was the first hour of prayer at the temple. And the point of the morning sacrifice was to begin the day in the worship of God. Psalm 5 was probably written to be sung at the morning sacrifice. And while the first person singular highlights David the Davidic king. It would also be any Israelite who comes and participates in the morning sacrifice because the king is the embodiment of the people. And so there's a way in which the point of the psalm as of the morning sacrifice is that our first thoughts of the day need to be directed toward God. This daily morning sacrifice was to orient all of God's people to the fact that the Lord is the center of our lives. It's Part of why the early church and in, throughout the Reformation churches, they would frequently maintain daily morning and evening prayers. And when morning and evening prayers were impossible due to distance or schedule, they encouraged families to meet together for daily morning and evening prayer. And that's where, it just, it's something I would encourage you, it, it's, it's hard to do in our culture, in our, in our, where we live all over the place and we're driving all different directions. I, I have a friend who who went to Hungary and said that in the Hungarian Reformed churches um, where everybody lives in the village and works out in the fields, um, the Hungarian Reformed in the villages still have morning and evening prayer every day. They will stop at the church building on their way out to the fields for morning prayer and then they'll come back in from the fields and stop for evening prayer. And they've been doing this for 500 years. (laughs) And more than that because they've been doing that before the Reformation too. But that's... That would be a great pattern. Unfortunately, it's probably impossible for us because we're, we don't all live in a clustered area and then go all, all go the same directions. Um, but we've made a, a fair amount of progress in the last 20 years. There are actually three mornings where we're, at least groups are gathering for morning prayer. On, on Monday morning, we have morning prayer at the Kaler House downtown. On Tuesday morning, the men's group has morning prayer here at the church building. On Wednesday morning, Academy has morning prayer here. So if if you happen to be downtown on Monday mornings, please stop by for morning prayer at the Kaler House. Or if you're you know, if you're if you can if you're passing through this area early in the morning on Tuesdays, join the men here. If you're if you're passing through later in the morning, 8:30 on Wednesdays. Morning prayer is a great way to begin the day together. And that's a, that's a start. And I don't expect that we'll ever reach a point where everybody's able to do that. But the importance of, of beginning our day together in whatever form that can take, whether in our homes or, in, uh, or at the church or at other places, it's a good, it's, it's a good thing to begin the day to, with, with God's people and that's, uh, so if you can do it in your families, if you can do it in groups of families, whatever way you can. But also, as Psalms 3, 4, and 6 are all talking about going to, to our rest in the evening with our hearts set upon the Lord. Psalm 5 is a particularly a morning psalm, calling us to turn our hearts to Christ and his sacrifice every morning. 
because God is a God who hears those who cry out to him. And notice why David cries out to the Lord. Here's our key in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. God is just. The reason why the Lord is a refuge is because you are confident that he is not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with him. If, if evil could, could dwell with God, he would not be a refuge. Because taking refuge in God would be no different than being any place else. Because if evil can dwell with him, then you just turned heaven into hell. Because everything is just, if everything is fair game. But God says, no, that's not the way I am. I, evil cannot dwell with me. We've been going through Leviticus in the evening service, looking at the question of how can we approach a holy God? How can sinners ascend the holy mountain of the Lord? And the answer that Leviticus starts with is, they can't. Okay, so we got a problem now, because God wants to dwell with his people. Evil, but evildoers cannot dwell with God. So how can an unholy people approach a holy God? Well, this is part of also where this morning prayer idea, this morning, the morning sacrifice in Psalm 5, is this, how can David and Israel approach a holy God? The progression we see in verses 4 through 6 help us understand this. In verse 4, evil, the generic term, may not dwell with God. In verse 5, it gets more concrete. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Let's think about these two different kinds of people that cannot stand before God. There's the boastful, which this is a word that simply means to praise, but when it's used in this way, it means those who praise themselves. It's, It's the word that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah 9 when the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let him not praise himself about his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him that boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Psalm 5 is using this term boastful to refer to those who boast in their own wisdom, their own might, their own riches. And he says the boastful will not stand before God. If you think about it, these these three things haven't changed much over the years. We often think that ah, education is the answer. So knowledge, wisdom, understanding, that's what matters. But all the knowledge in the world will not get you before God. Others focus on obtaining wealth and financial security. But wealth cannot purchase favor with God. Others just want to be in control of their circumstances. How well well is that working for you? Power is fleeting. The boastful shall not stand before God. All your education, all your investments... All your shrewd maneuvering is for nothing. Why? Well, that's the second type of person. Because God hates all evildoers. We very rarely think of ourselves as evildoers. 
we oftentimes we, we can see perhaps how we're boastful, but we tend not to think of ourselves because we, we all tend to think very highly of ourselves. Oh, right, we're boastful. But evildoer is translated worker of iniquity in the King James. You could also translate it troublemaker. To be a troublemaker, to be an evildoer, to be a worker of iniquity is one who is not walking in the way that God says. You might wonder, how can it say that God hates evildoers? Doesn't God love sinners? Well, God loves everything that he has made, and especially humanity whom he made in his own image. That's where we're going in Psalm 8. And because God loves humanity whom he made in his own image. Therefore, he hates whatever it is that harms that which he loves. You see, a proper hatred is one that is measured and appropriate. An improper or inordinate hatred is one that is off the rails, out of control, not aimed well. And that's why hatred is such a dangerous thing. Although the psalmist in another psalm will say, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? There's a proper place for hatred. Very small proper place for hate. But but when we hear that God himself hates evildoers, it's because God's hatred of evildoers is very appropriate. It's precisely because he loves them. You see, love and hate are not actually opposed to each other in that way. That hatred is, this is properly speaking, when things are not the way they should be if you don't hate that which is out of control there's a, actually you've got a problem I mean, just imagine the scenario where you're out of the park with your kids and a, a, a kidnapper comes along and grabs, grabs your kid and runs off would you say ah, oh, how wonderful I love that guy. Okay, I think we'd all agree, a person who had that response has something really wrong with them. There's a proper use of hatred, anger in that context. Namely, no, stop that, put my child down. That's, that's what hatred's for. It's for correcting the things that are wrong. The problem is, we get way out of control with our hatred, and we oftentimes get off the rails with it, and that's why it's so dangerous. But God's hatred of evildoers is very appropriate, and God has a purpose, which that's during Advent we especially see how all this is coming together, of how he is going to make things right. But when you put together the idea of the boastful, those who praise themselves, and the worker of iniquity, those who make trouble, you start to see the picture. When we are full of ourselves, we start to think of ourselves as entitled to something. And that sense of entitlement results in trouble for ourselves and for others. But if in verse 4 we heard that God does not delight in wickedness, and now in verse 5 we see that wickedness consists in being full of ourselves and making trouble for others then verse 6 must follow. You destroy those who speak lies. It's not just that God doesn't like it. God's going to do something about it. The Lord destroys those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, not just in a passive sort of like, I don't like it, but no, he, he, he's going to do something about this. 
why does the psalmist focus on speaking lies here? Well, because lies, lies are not just a minor nuisance. Lies tear at the fabric of reality. Hang on to that way of thinking about it. Lies tear at the fabric of reality. Why do I put it that way? How did God make the world? By his word. Truth isn't just an abstract concept. Truth is what God made. Reality is that, you know, that which is true is actually a thing. It's all the things that we see and feel and touch and hear around us is that which is true, which is spoken by his word. And so lies tear at the fabric of reality. If all of reality is spoken as the word of God, every lie, every untruth shreds the world that God made. When we lie, we are saying something that is false to what is. We are seeking to unmake the world by our words. That's why the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Destroying with words and killing a man are not nearly so far apart as we like to think. Satan used deceitful words to turn Eve away from following God, and the next thing you know, Cain's killing his brother Abel. And ever since, we have been using words to tear down and destroy How can we return to the Lord? If the Lord destroys those who speak lies, how can we enter the presence of a holy God? And yet, notice what David says in verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. How, How can we get there? It's why the singular voice is so important. This is the voice of David, the Lord's anointed. This is why Psalms 1 and 2 begin this altar together. Psalm 1, the blessed man, singular, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And Psalm 2, the Lord has has set his anointed on his throne and declared his anointed, his Messiah, to be his son, because blessed are all, plural, who trust in him, who take refuge in him. As we gather for the morning sacrifice, we do not come in our own righteousness. We do not boast in our own wisdom or might or wealth. We come to Jesus, the one who has entered God's holy house through his own blood, not through the blood of bulls and goats, not, not through the blood of, of the ordinary morning sacrifice, but through the once-for-all sacrifice that he brought in his own flesh. We enter through the abundance of his steadfast love. We bow down, not merely toward God's holy temple, but in God's heavenly temple. We have access into the very heavenly holy of holies. And as long as we remain in our sins, we can't get there. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, those who receive his righteousness by faith can now enter into God's holy place. And that's why if you are in Christ, then you are no longer an evildoer. God hates all evildoers. He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Paul will will say very clearly in, in Corinthians that those who return to those paths will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But notice how, Paul, how the psalmist approaches the Lord here. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Not, I, through my own righteousness, because I'm such a good person. No, it's through your steadfast love, through your covenant faithfulness. This is the word chesed, which refers to the idea of faithfulness, love, mercy, in a covenantal relation. It's hard to translate with just one word. But God is faithful to his covenant. Do you remember God's covenant with Abraham? How he declared that all nations would be blessed through him? God made his covenant with Israel through Moses, declaring that they would be the instrument of his blessing to the nations. And in David, he declared that David's son would rule forever at his right hand. And the psalmist now declares that we may enter the temple of the Lord and bow down and worship before him because we come through the abundance of his covenant faithfulness. It's why God sent Jesus As Jesus sang this psalm, he understood that it was the covenant faithfulness, the chesed of the Lord that upheld him. And and so so, verse 8 asks God to lead in the right way. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. My enemies are heading the wrong direction. And if I'm not careful, I will allow them to set my path. I need you, O Lord, to lead, to make your way straight before me. There's no particular situation that David names in this psalm. Why not? Because like most of the psalms, this isn't just a piece of individual poetry reflecting on my own personal experience. This is a song for the people of God to sing with their anointed king. It's a song for us to sing with Jesus. And because God has made his way straight for Jesus, because God has opened the way into the heavenly holy of holies where Jesus now sits enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords, therefore, we now sing this song in him. We can have confidence that right now, in your life, God will do the same for you that he did for, his, for Jesus. Because you are surrounded by the voices of your enemies. You are surrounded by voices that would lead downward into the pit. And the key to this is in verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hear all this language of of words, voices, mouths, tongues. There is no truth in their mouth. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. But at the heart of their words, at their inmost self, is destruction. Their words destroy. Their tongues tear down. Their voices lead to misery, death, and destruction. Jesus taught us that it's from the heart that the mouth speaks. So when words tear down and destroy, that reflects a heart that is bent on destruction. What then does King Jesus ask of his father? Psalm 5 concludes with David crying out for judgment against the wicked. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who live by speaking evil of others will fall by their own counsels. 
Think of Haman, who in the book of Esther devised evil for the Jews and built a gallows for Mordecai. But his wicked counsels came back on his own head and he was hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Now, we would love it if the wicked would repent. That would be by far the preferred way of dealing with it. But David understands that the only way for God to make things right is to bring to an end that which is wrong. If the wrong never changes, then the rebels will continue in their rebellion. And more and more harmful words will keep shredding reality. More and more people will get hurt. If God doesn't deal with this, if this never ends, we're in trouble. And that's why the psalmist also pleads the case for those who take refuge in the Lord. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. Notice the the plural there. All who take refuge in you, let them ever sing. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name... And then notice how he goes back to the singular in verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. After all, why do you seek refuge? You seek refuge because you're being pursued. The world, the flesh, and the devil have conspired to destroy you. And now you have fled to the living God. And you're saying, judge between me and my enemies. Don't let those who seek my life devour me. And so you flee to God, coming in the name of His beloved Son, the Righteous One, our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is a righteous judge. And if He has declared you to be His Son and heir in joining you to Jesus, then you may flee to Him and say, Vindicate me, Father, because you have made me your child, because you have declared me righteous in Christ. Vindicate me. Deliver me from my enemies. There was nothing that David had done to earn his place as a son of God. He was the youngest son, a shepherd boy, and yet God raised him up to be king over all Israel. It was all the work of God's grace. David's not saying, I've been so righteous in myself. No. He comes to God as a son to his father and pleads, Save me from my enemies. Remember your son, the one you have made to look like you. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have taken refuge in him then you are righteous in Him. You are acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. You have found favor in His sight. Now, it is all due to God's steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness. But sometimes I think that we we think that if it's of grace, then it isn't really true. Because I'm not righteous in and of myself, therefore I'm not really righteous. Think about the implications of that. If you're saying, I'm not really righteous, then you're saying, Jesus' blood doesn't actually cleanse me from my sin. You're saying that works are more powerful than grace. Now, also think about the the practical implications of this. If you believe that you're a sinner and you just can't help but sin because sinning is just what I do, then you're believing one of those lies that tears at the fabric of reality. Because in Christ, you have been cleansed from your sin. 
Paul will say in Corinthians that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, you're never in a position where you have to sin. Now, do we keep sinning? Unfortunately, yes. But you never have to sin. You're never in a situation... Oh, I know. There are moments when it feels like it. There are moments when the temptation seems so strong, I don't know how I could avoid this. But that's where we need to remember God's promises, that when he says that with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, we need to believe what he says. And when temptation strikes, remind the tempter that you are not his anymore. Look the tempter in the eye and say, I don't have to do that. I'm not yours anymore. I belong to Jesus. If you are in Christ, then all that is his has become yours. And because he is righteous, therefore you are righteous in him. And so now he calls you to be in Christ who you are in Christ. As God has blessed Jesus and covered him with favor as with a shield, so now he blesses you who take refuge in him. And he covers you and brings you to himself. Indeed, immediately after saying that you may be able to endure it, Paul adds, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Part of why we come to the Lord's table is because here we find the grace to withstand the assaults of the evil one and walk humbly day by day. So let us pray and ask God to have mercy on us and help us. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin and misery, but you sent your Son who came in our flesh and who bore in his own body the wrath and curse due to us for sin. Help us as we take refuge in you to cling to you and to hold fast to your promises that we might hear your voice and walk humbly before you as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.